You are listening to Changing Hearts, Changing Lives, a seminar given by Changing Lives Ministries. David Pallison is a counselor and faculty member with a Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, as well as the editor of the Journal of Biblical Counseling, a publication of CCEF. Session 5. One of the things that brings me and Paul great pleasure in speaking with people about these things is the way in which what we say actually is familiar to people. You already know these things. And in a sense, what we are seeking to do is take things that we know. In fact, we sing about them, right? There was, there was no disjunct between the hymns and the songs of praise that we just sang. There's no disjunct between the prayers of the faith and the things we talk about as we're talking about, okay, what's really going on with people? What's the relationship between people's situation? What's motivating them? You know, all that counseling talk, all that, what makes you tick? Why you do what you do? What gets you in trouble? How do you change? Those things, and of course it should be this, they map on perfectly to to those aspects of the faith that we know already because we've read our Bible We've heard sermons, we've sung songs, we've praised God in hymns, we've prayed. You think, for example, of some of the, just the classic, let alone the, the uh, you know, the great hymns of faith, think of some of the classic prayers, like the prayer of Francis of Assisi. Oh, Lord, grant that I would not so much seek to be loved as to love, that I would not so much seek to be understood as to understand, to be consoled as to console. That is so un-20th and 21st century, isn't it? In other words, what he's saying is that it's not just, oh, Lord, meet my needs, my little here I am, I'm this bundle of needs, and you come in and I'm the sun in the universe and you're the planet that's supposed to come around and make me feel good. No, the the whole topography, geography of the universe is turned around. He's the sun. And my biggest need, my biggest problem is that I don't love. And... God's love happens to be tailored. It's the key that fits that lock. And if I know that my biggest problem is what we've been calling the thorn bush, the love of God bursts into flame and light and joy and hope and meaning for us, doesn't it? When we try to tailor God sort of to the size of our own cramped little desires, which are our problem in the first place, somehow the love of God never quite fits that, key, that lock because it's keyed to a different lock. One of the joys of what uh, we have been presenting is that sense that you know it already. Let me pray for us as we jump in today and uh, continue to seek the wisdom of our God. Our Father, we thank you that you have come to us to open our eyes and to change our hearts and to meet us at the point of who we really are. You say to us that If we praise God with our lips and then we curse our brother, we hold hostile judgmental thoughts, we think of ourselves as superior, or we are full of fear, we are liars. We are hypocrites. We must love our brother if we love our God. And it is that disjunct that drives us to you. It's that disjunct that every one of us here keenly feels. We know that we are men and women who who fall short who must wrestle our way to the light, who, need the, who when we find the light, find that in fact it was the light himself who was drawing us to even want the light. Oh, Lord, would you teach us to say, Lord, our hearts are not proud. Our eyes aren't haughty. 
We don't go after things too great or difficult for us. Surely, Lord, we have composed, quieted, wrestled down our souls like a weaned child on his mother, calm, not fretting, like a weaned child on my lap is my soul. Make this so in us. Israel, people of God, children of God, hope in the Lord now and forever. Our Father, teach us. Our Jesus Christ, teach us. Holy Spirit, teach us these very things. In your name, to your glory. Amen. Well, this picture should be familiar to you. I hope that our funny little map is starting to get, take on a little bit of coloration. You know, it, a map does, does you absolutely no good unless you actually go there, does it? Just a bunch of lines on a piece of paper. Once you start to go there, the map starts to take on the coloration of the way life really is. And uh, I do hope that as we continue through our sessions together, and particularly as you take what Paul and I have been speaking and will speak of, and knead it into your life, my hope and prayer is that, the, you know, in a way you leave the map behind. The map just taught you to get from familiar with unfamiliar territory, and you start to live in that land, and you know your way around and you're oriented. That is our hope and our goal. Um, there was a, uh, a, a story uh, from about 150 years ago. The, uh, this, star, this story could have happened yesterday because the same thing would, would uh, take place, uh, or the first half of it would. The London Times put out a question to all its readers, and it said, what's the biggest problem in the world today? Thousands of people wrote in, and they said all the kinds of things that people would say today. You know, in, today they'd say, well, terrorism and the economy and, and the co rising cost of medical care and the Democrats or the Republicans or who, you know, whoever happens to be your particular whipping boy and pollution and the ozone layer and on and on. My next door neighbor whose dog barks. At, uh, there was one man that wrote in, and it, what he wrote was this. What is the biggest problem in the world today? I am sincerely yours, George MacDonald. He was a well-known novelist, a well-known Christian of the middle of the century. He was a man who saw accurately that yes, there is all this heat. There's all these troubles in our world. There's all these things that wouldn't it be great if we can be solved. And yes, it's good that we pour our efforts into you know, fixing the environment and creating political justice and protecting people from mass destruction. Those are good things, but they aren't the biggest problem in the world today. And George MacDonald had it right. What's the biggest problem? I am sincerely yours, George MacDonald. And when we think about that issue, what is the problem? When you get the problem right, then the solution that the Bible reveals makes all the sense in the world. And the, and the solution the Bible gives comes and it meets us at both what we could call both levels of our problem. In our little picture, it's really, there is this dual problem. There is this fact that we are thorn bushes, whole briar patches, in fact. And there is this fact that those briar patches, those thorn bushes, live in the desert. And there is pain and suffering and temptation and misery and heartache and disappointment and threat. But you've got to get the order right. What comes first? What is the deeper problem? And you get the order right, 
and the world starts to make sense for you. There's a, a wonderful passage in the Bible. It, it, I, I, part of why I like it is it's the most depressing verse in the Bible. But it's the most depressing verse in the Bible, and when you get that straight, it's, it, you, you realize, well, yeah, if I can see things this way, then all the good stuff in the Bible shines with extreme glory. This is in uh, Ecclesiastes 9, and uh, uh, in verse uh, 3. And what the author says, notice how the word evil is used twice. And then think how those two uses map onto what we've been talking about for the, for the last sessions. There is an evil in all that is done under the sun. In that, there is one fate for all men. You see what he's saying there? There's an evil in that there is what we've been calling here heat. In fact, the ultimate heat, the it's the blast furnace. Death awaits every human being. And that's an evil. That's bad. That hurts. That's wrong. That shouldn't be. But then he goes, Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. And insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. And then they die. But, uh, and what he does there is he points out this, you could call it, it's this dual need that we have. We are sufferers, heat. We are sinners, thorns. And redemption has come to deal with both. Sanity gets straight the relationship between them. And what I want us to do this, 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 uh, in this session together is start to dig in and look at the way in which the two, those two things, the heat and our reactions, fit together. It, uh, God cares about both. It's with good reason, if you, if you, as you look at your picture there, that there's that shadowy tree of life that touches both the thorn bush and the heat. Because redemption does touch both. Jesus comes to die for sinners, and Jesus comes to heal the sick and raise the dead and deliver the oppressed. His mercy ministry has two features. His mercy comes to sufferers to do them good. His mercy comes to sinners to, do, to die for them and do them good. And that mercy is, part, is everywhere in Scripture. You think, for example, uh, from, from the, the pr one of the prayers that was on Jesus' own lips towards the end of Psalm 22. Listen to this, because this is about heat. He, the Lord, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from me. But when I cried to him for help, he heard me. You hear what he's saying there, yes? It is, he is speaking, we speak to a God who cares about our afflictions, doesn't he? Or in a simpler verse, it's uh, the Psalm 46, familiar to many of us. It, uh, God is a very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. The mountains can fall in the sea. In trouble, danger, threat. He's a very present help. But then the Bible always, never lets us, you might say, just simply think of ourselves as sufferers because the reason, ultimately, and the ultimate logic of the universe, the reason we suffer is because there is something about us that deserves that blast furnace, as it were. And so there's other parts where the prayer is, uh, for example, in Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious he is slow to anger. He is abounding in loving kindness. He has not dealt with us 
as our sins deserve. But as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear them. Or in a pithier, pithier way, the middle of Psalm 20. Psalm 25 is a very interesting psalm. Because Psalm 25, it starts out with suffering. And then he starts to think about the fact that since the wicked deserve to suffer, he deserves to suffer. And then he starts to think about the fact that God's going to change him. It's his change agenda. And you finally get to the dead. The psalm is like a V. You might think of it as sideways V. It starts out with suffering. It moves to God will change me. And then dead centers, verse 11. And it's the core need of mankind. And he says, O Lord, for your name's sake, have mercy upon me because my iniquities are many. And then the V backs out, and he talks more about how God teaches us and trains us and transforms us. And then he ends with a very passionate plea that God would remove his sufferings. There's this this finely articulated dance between sin and suffering, and you've got to get it straight in order to, to rightly orient your own life and your counsel and encouragement to other people. Now, what I want us to see uh, we'll jump, there, there are many places in Scripture we could go, but I'm going to start in one particular passage in 2 Corinthians. What makes this passage so interesting and so useful for our uh, concerns t- together as a group is that this is a passage that is right at the heart of the dynamic that makes you an effective counselor of others, makes you someone whose words actually count, whose words have weight, whose words are the right words, whose words are able to enter another person's life their sufferings, their sins, their heart, their behavior, the good things in their lives, what they're doing right, things to encourage, what they're doing wrong, things to expose and help them see, how the gospel works. This is a passage that's central to how you become wise. And the verse that I want you to focus on in, in, uh, sec- in 2 Corinthians 1 is, uh, the, is verse 4. It says there in verse 4 that God comforts us. Why don't we put that in this, in, directly to you? He comforts you, you, in all your affliction. Why? So you'll feel good? So you have a happy life? So, so that you will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. There's a dynamic described there. And what it is describing is there's something about the way you process your life. Whether it's the traffic jams, or the cancer diagnosis, or the betrayal by a best friend, or the bankruptcy, or the split in your church, or the grief over a kid who's straying. There's something, a hangnail, you know, a bad hair day, you know. Your hormone's out of whack. Your mother dies. Something about whatever, the way you process your particular heat. That if, you, that if you get it, you have something to give to anybody. It's the most amazing, amazing promise. There's something about the nature of wisdom that you don't just get it from a book. It's not like going, you know, you want to take a trip from wherever you live to, you know, Montana, and you walk into a AAA office, the travel agent, and that person need never have been to Montana. They can pull out a triptych or a map, and they can draw, you know, book things for you, and they can draw with yellow highlighter on a map, and they can send you right to Montana. And they've never been there. 
It's not like that with counsel. It's not like that with wisdom. You've got to, be, you've got to go there. Right? There's something about where you're going, how you're going, that is absolutely essential to giving you what it takes to help people. I'll give you one small example in this. There's, there's something about the nature of ministry to struggling people where you need to have at the same time an unquenchable and an and, and inexhaustible compassion, right? Love is patient. Be patient with them all. So you can't be irritable, rousty, aggressive, hostile, critical, self-righteous, the guru, you know, the, you know, the fix-it, Mr. Fix-it. You must be patient. At the same time, you must have something to really give people. You must be able to challenge people, to hold on, to speak words of life with confidence and boldness. So there's this amazing combination in real ministry where it is utterly humble and it is utterly bold. Natural people don't put those two together. Half of us fall on the line, you know, we see something wrong, we tee off on it. The other half of us are a bunch of softies and we just want everybody to feel good. And we don't, we don't tend to put together genuine kindness and clarity and toughness. They don't tend to go on the same package. You get nice people and you get aggressive people. But wisdom is kind of not really quite either one of those. It is unquenchably kind because love is patient and love is kind. And it is unquenchably truthful because it is speaking the truth in love by which we grow up and become different than we are by nature. So that's where we want to start. We want to get to this uh, good fruit of, in fact, I, I see there's something missing on, on our overhead here. Uh, uh, what, what ought to be here is, it was in, is in the notebook, wise, effective counsel, you know, verses one, chapter one, verses four to six, the ability to offer wise, effective counsel. Now, how did Paul get there? And here it's real surprising. What an, oh, there we are, I'm sorry. How does he get there? He starts talking about his sufferings. Now, this is lunatic in a way. Think with me. How many people do you know that, that when they start talking about, well, this is how my boss treated me, and my wife's like that, and I'm so bitter because I don't have a husband, and my kids did this, and my health is all gone shot. And How many people talk about their sufferings as a way to tell you how they became wise and joyful? But that's where Paul goes. So here's the passage, okay? Because he starts out joyful. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. I mean, just, this is God. Look who he is. Look how good he is. And then he says that this God comforts us in our affliction. It's the royal we there. You know? So we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And then he goes on, he starts, to, and the next four or five verses, it's suffering, affliction, comfort, affliction, affliction, suffering, comfort, comfort, affliction. Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings we also suffer. Our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are shares of our sufferings, you are also shares of our comfort. He, what has he been doing here? He's, he's been just playing off of two 
words, suffering, affliction. You know, it's, you know what, what's suffering? It hurts. Pretty basic, isn't it? Suffering just means it doesn't feel good. What's affliction? Pressure, squeeze. You could probably say the modern word pressure is the best. The pressure is on, the heat is on, the squeeze is on. And then just in case we didn't get it, he decides to get specific. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction that came to us in Asia. So now he's going to tell you specifics. He's going to tell you exactly what happened to him that hurt and, was, and, and put the squeeze on him, the pressure was on. We were burdened excessively beyond our strengths that we despaired even of life. In other words, I thought I was going to die. The gun was to my head. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Then he stops talking about his sufferings, and look where he goes here. So that. And all of a sudden, you know, the whole world has changed here for him. He, he, I suffered all these things so that something would happen. What is that something? So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a peril of death. He will deliver us. He on whom we've set our hope, he will yet deliver us. You also joining in with your prayers and so forth. So he starts out by talking about his sufferings, his affliction, the pressure, the difficulty, the hardship, the things that don't feel good. Now, this Next part is not in the passage beyond a sort of general sense. In verse 12, it talks about, we did not act with fleshly wisdom. But this is one of these places you can fill in the blanks. What are the typical reactions people have when life stinks, when it hurts? Well, people get angry. I don't like this. People get afraid. I don't want this to happen in my life. People get depressed. My life is hopeless. My hopes are shot. Everything's gone down the drain. Why do I bother to breathe air? People get escapism. You know, here's a great, you know, my life hurts, so let me drink. Dull the pain. My life stinks, I'll watch TV all day. My life stinks, I'll eat a quart of Briar's ice cream. Whatever it is. The uh, flesh, fleshly wisdom comes real easily. And most people, when they suffer, they find themselves, like, we don't need to put, talk about they over there, it's us, right? Most of us, when we suffer, this is the stuff that first comes out. Fleshly wisdom. And it's this sort of thing that then, if that's how you live, you're of no use to anybody, are you? You don't have anything to give to other people. There's no way to counsel other people in the brutal realities of real life if you yourself are sliding down the same drain hole that they are, is it? No use, no comfort. There's no ability to actually encourage people who are facing anything, right? Because you haven't received. But then Paul goes, cuts right to the core of how change takes place. And, and, it, and it, is, it is that there's, that under that, that uh, godless uh, conduct, that fleshly wisdom, there are things that you could call, uh, he picks one biggie, self-trust. And when you think about it, the logic is, is impeccable. If I trust myself and my life's going down the drain, then of course I'm angry. If life's going down the drain and I trust myself, I'll get depressed. If my life's going down the drain and I trust myself, I have every reason in the world to try to escape and you deserve a break today and find my little goodies. It makes, there is a logic where the behavior and emotion, you might say, comes at the intersection of a certain kind of heart that meets the circumstances of life. And that heart is self-trusting. 
But Paul is able to do this amazing thing because he is embedding his story in a bigger story. It's a different story that he's walking out here. And so this passage just abounds with the revelation of the Messiah, doesn't it? And you'll notice here how utterly tailor-made what God says about himself is. For example, I'll just pick two of, two of the, the, the things that, you, that you've got there. One of them is, okay, you've got the gun to your head. I despaired of life. I thought I was going to die. You know, voila. Isn't it amazing that what he chooses to say is, I learned to no longer trust in myself, but to trust in God who raises the dead. And if you're going to die, and you trust a God who raises the dead, why would you be bitter? Why would you be fearful? Why would you take drugs? Why would you just veg out and watch TV and become indifferent to life? There's every reason in the world, if there is a God who, who raises the dead, and I have learned to trust him, that I would be able to approach that situation and realize, this, the story of the universe is not my little story. It's his story. I'm a bit actor within this story, and there is a reason for this, and there is a hope that is good at the end of it, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies of every sort and the God of all comfort. There's a reason for joy. And there's a message to be able to give to people in need. The other thing that I want to flag for you here uh, is the in order that. It's, it's the most amazing little conjunction because he is looking at his sufferings and able to say, this happened in order that my life would become different. Because my life is in God's hands. Because this is his story being played out and worked into the fabric of my life. Brothers and sisters, do you know what the starting point of the Reformation was in the 1500s? The Reformation, out of which so much of the, the vitality of understanding of Scripture and truth came, of which we are heirs. It, uh, it wasn't with justification by faith alone. It wasn't with the priesthood of all believers that it's not just, there's not just priests and then dolts, but that every Christian has gifts. It wasn't that that started. It wasn't the sovereignty of God. It wasn't the centrality of Scripture. The starting point of the Reformation, the first of the 95 theses that Martin Luther banged onto the door, was that the Christian life is a race of repentance and change. It is this from to dynamic, from the thorn bush to the fruit tree, and that that is a lifelong process from to, that the Christian life is a life of discipleship in the way we talked about it in our previous, uh, one of our previous sessions, that that was at the center. Luther made a wonderful statement on this. Uh, this is not, was not the first thesis, but he expanded on it. He said this, this life is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. This life is not health. We haven't arrived but healing. This life is not being, but becoming. This life is not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be. We are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished. It is going on. This is not the end. It is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. See, it's that, it's that sense that whatever I face in my circumstances, there is this story of an ongoing work of a Savior that I'm able to, you might say, tell to myself, repent in the light of, seek and find God because of, and through that then, the very thing I have found, you know, I've driven to Montana, 
I can really help someone go to Montana because I've been there. I know where the pitfalls are. I know how long it takes. I know where you get stuck. I know how hard it is. You've walked it. You've received it. And you've got something to give away to other people that makes sense. Trust in God, the renewed conscience, and then out of that we get the wonderful fruits of visible praise and wise counsel. For information about this resource and others like it, call Resources for Changing Lives at 1-800-318-2186 or visit us on the web at www.ccef.org. A CDR Communications Production.